Hey there, and welcome to a special episode of Humans of Magic. This week, we're going to do something a little different. Rather than the usual me playing the interviewer and interviewing a guest, we're going to turn the tables around a little bit, and I'm going to be the interviewee or the guest. So for this episode, I got my good friend Mate Zatokai, aka Big Z, who is a very accomplished magic player and commentator, to be the interviewer, to play the Humans of Magic interviewer role. And it's a little bit self-serving, a little bit self-indulgent, but Mate was absolutely great at interviewing me. And I hope this episode gives you a little bit of insight as to who I am as the driving force behind Humans of Magic. So please enjoy. As usual, I will do a quick plug for the Humans of Magic Patreon at patreon.com slash humans of magic. This is where you can go and support what I do. For as little as $2 a month, you can help keep this project alive and be a part of the community, the Discord, and even play a hand in deciding future guests and how we want to ask guests questions and be more involved behind the scenes. I would really appreciate if you could show some support. Now, without further ado, let's get to the interview. Mate, how are you doing today? Hey, James. Good to see you again. It's been a while, hasn't it? It has been a while. It's been uh, too long, I think. It has. It has. But I'm, I'm glad to connect with you today. Yes. Um, but we're going to mix up a little bit today, right? It's going to be uh, what the proverbial turning the tables. Yes, we're going to do the classic switcheroo because, first of all, thank you for having me, James. I really appreciate it. Uh, but I was a little bit inspired. Um, you know, uh, you, you interviewed my good friend Will Hall uh, a couple months back. I really liked that interview. But uh, what I liked most about that particular episode was that he was kind of peeking into the humans of bat magic like behind the curtain, as you would, to try to have a bit of a, a look-see and like, what is humans of magic about who are you and i thought hmm, why not do an episode where actually someone interviews you so a proper switcher room so for those at home i'm gonna be interviewing james today which i'm very excited about and i hope you're ready james i am ready and it does feel indulgent for me to be interviewed uh i have to admit that <laughs> But I'm being interviewed by a legend right here, so it's, it, it's <laughs> Very not kind. just anybody, it's Big Z. Yeah. So. <laughs> I appreciate that, uh, James. And uh, you know, our interview was a really long time ago. Uh, everything before COVID feels like it was 10 years ago, but it might have actually been even t been 10 years, uh, for, for all I know. Uh, but don't worry about being self-indulgent. Uh, from a perspective of a fan of the Humans of Magic uh, podcast, I think it's always good to you know get to know the other person a little bit better. And I think, you know, for those who have seen a lot of your videos, like you get little glimpses here and there of what, what you are like. So I'm kind of want to just put it all into kind of one episode and really find out who James Sue is. So I'm going to start right away. Without mentioning Magic the Gathering, tell me your life story. <laughs> We're always starting with the, the simplest question. Um, I'm... I'm kind of speechless, but I, I think I would say that my life story is that I'm just someone who loves exploring some new things, exploring mm -hmm. new ways of thinking and exploring new knowledge. 
Uh, I was born in Taiwan, grew up in Canada. I now live in mainland China. I've been a traveling magic player without the pro tour credentials. Just I've, I've enjoyed being around the world. Uh, I've enjoyed exploring different cultures and talking to different people. And I don't really love labeling myself like I've done a bunch of things, but I would just say that I like to keep an open mind and I like to explore what's out there and explore how other people think about life, I guess. Yeah, that's why we're here. And uh, yeah, based on my, you know, my me knowing you, like you're pretty good at that. So, so that's good. So I do want to talk about magic, of course, because that's how we got to know each other. That's how most people know you from your involvement in Magic the Gathering. So I'm curious, like, how did you get into magic? Who was who? Who or what was the gateway for you? Uh, my gateway was just uh, it's 1994. I'm I see my first LGS while I was at the mall with my younger brother and my family. And we just saw the the two-player revised um, set. You know, I think I remember it was like a big box. It had the glass counters It had in a pouch. It had uh, two shrink-wrapped revised starter decks. And it was the first time I've ever seen anything, or for, first time anyone's seen anything like that uh, in a store. You know, I think at the time the store had a whole bunch of different singles for sale. And we just looked at the cards in the behind the glass counter, like Shivan Dragon. Uh, oh my gosh, like Nightmare, just iconic cards. I've seen, I, I have, I'm just seeing them for the first time. And of course, you know, my brother and I had a very limited allowance, so we couldn't really ask our parents to buy us the stuff that was like way marked up in retrospect. So we just said, hey, buy us the uh, two player set. And that's how we started. Um, started our experience with magic yeah that's amazing and so where were your next magic steps then like you you started playing with your brother uh did you have like a level up moment actually i didn't branch out from casual magic at home for the longest time so i had basically throughout the 90s my brother and i just played each other at home we just played annie we bought packs of magic sets as they came out in the 90s and just played at home like every once in a while we would play in school like with our with our classmates and during lunch break and whatnot but that was it man like i didn't actually <laughs> play <laughs> tournaments uh or go to an lgs to play magic uh at all in, in okay. fact um this is kind of a a sidebar but i got really hooked onto another card game and i started playing that competitively in the 90s and that consumed my life so Magic was in the 90s for me was just always kind of a casual thing. Like I bought the Duelist. I bought the, the I, I tried to follow uh, pre-internet as much of Tournament Magic and the Pro Tour, uh, you know, in magazines as I could. But there was no attempt made to actually, you know, play whatever the equivalent of Friday Night Magic was back then or uh, play in tournaments. It was strictly casual. So when was your first tournament? What's the story <laughs> was, behind that? Oh no, it was it's it had to fast forward a lot. Basically I okay, stopped wow. magic when I when I went to college, which was like in around two thousand. I, I thought magic wasn't really cool, so I didn't do it. Uh and I think it was two thousand and eight. It was okay. it was I mean, we're talking about a decade later when I think it was Time Spiral block and Time Spiral the set. And I just basically 
uh, thought, hey, this is really cool. There's some nostalgic stuff from the 90s. Um, let's try playing Magic again. And I started drafting and I started basically playing Magic and buying Magic cards again. Okay, okay. I mean... I, I would say that Time Spiral is a great set when you you know you've been playing nineties like lots of callbacks, uh, but extremely one... high complexity. I didn't understand any of <laughs> yeah, it. Of course, <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. A lot of the a lot of the cards were very complicated. But my my question was like, uh, so you come back with Time Spiral. Uh, when does your story with the legacy format really start? Because I that's if, for those of you who don't know, for me, James, you are associated with legacy format in my mind. So how did you get into that format? What led you there? I think it was actually two years after that, or maybe a year after that. So 2009, 2010, I got back into Magic, as I mentioned. I started playing uh, Kitchen Table Magic. We didn't know any formats or any rules. There was no such thing as Commander. We just played 60 cards against each other in a multiplayer fashion. And I started drafting and then I just wanted to play tournaments again. And I realized that I had missed out on a decade of magic, right? And, mm -hmm. you know, when, and then going back and reading about uh, pro magic in the 90s, 2000s, I just realized, oh man, I missed a lot of stuff. I missed a ton. You know, I think uh, as someone who's played competitively during that time, I mean, I don't know, you, there's what, like the entire Kamigawa block, Mirrodin, yeah. um, you name it. So I had missed like a decade of cards, right? I didn't even follow Magic at that time. So I was basically thinking, what's a way for me to reconnect with older cards, some cards that I played with in the 90s, but also some cards that I missed in the 2000s and actually play in a competitive format. So I basically just found Legacy very quickly and mm -hmm. uh, befriend befriended a few people who were very friendly and invited me to play Legacy at the LGS, and that's kind of how it started. Yeah, and uh, so what, throughout, you know, since then, so in in the last 12, 13 years, what is it like a pet deck or like a deck of choice? Because we know that Legacy is known for people playing like the same deck for like quite a long time. So what's your what's your deck of choice for Legacy? Even though I, I assume it probably changed over the last couple of years due to the many powerful cards that were printed. Yeah, yeah. Since Fire, I think uh, there's, it's no longer true that you can hold on to the same deck. <laughs> uh, I would say my all-time favorite deck in Legacy has got to be Zoo. Like, mm -hmm. just Wild Nakato and Beatdown. Yeah. I'm fundamentally a, a Beatdown type of player. Uh, but then I basically gravitated to something very boring, which is Delver. Like, I just, I've just <laughs> been playing Delver, the, what do you call this, the the Fun Police. It's just a all-around solid deck. It just does a lot of things it gives you a lot of uh, uh a lot of free wins if you have the right draws and i just uh i, I mean i i've got to say man i've i've dabbled with, dabbled with so many different legacy decks over the years i've tried a whole bunch of things across the the gamut but i would say that i where i am right now it's uh uh delver but all-time favorite has to be zoo even though that is now uh, an extinct deck so. Yeah, yeah, I I feel your pain. I I'm actually going through you know my collection right now, going through a bunch of the old boxes I have with cards, and it just hurts when I see cards like Wild Nacatl, which I used to play so fondly back in the day, and not really relevant anymore, sadly. So yeah, that's that's how things are. So uh, th these things change, but um, it kind of segues me to like really talking about like what you do in the magic community and leading into humans of magic because 
at least for me, it's been a bit of a mainstay over the last few years, right? Like, yes, there's been, you know, times when uh, when you've done the podcast more, sometimes less, but in general, it's always kind of been there. And, and I do still recognize it as like, pretty evergreen, evergreen content for, for Magic players to consume, you know, interesting interviews with interesting people over the years. I'm very curious because I don't really know how you got there, but like, what is the origin idea? Like, where did you get the idea to start making Humans of Magic? Uh, I mean, I, I have to fully credit my my good friend, uh, Julian Knob, who is uh, mm -hmm. also a very good, uh, well, he's a much better legacy player than I am. <laughs> he, he's, he plays all kinds of legacy decks, but I think he was really on the map with elves for for legacy he's a he's a very friendly german guy he has his own podcast um julian has always been someone that's very encouraging of me trying on new creative projects basically a few years back i had written uh some pieces about my own journey with competitive magic uh especially in legacy uh mm -hmm. i wrote a whole bunch of blog posts which ultimately became a book and uh after i wrote the book and published it i thought i'm so sick and tired of just writing about myself i just don't ever <laughs> want to talk about myself again this is this is way too much this is very um indulgent as i the, i guess is the word i'll use again and uh i just thought um i think it would be really nice to turn the tables and just get to explore different people in the community in a way that is not often talked about because i feel like as magic players, we always have these great conversations with people when we travel with them, when we go to events and we always end up talking, or at least I always end up talking with friends or magic players about everything but magic. Right. So that's kind of how, that's kind of how it started. I wanted to do that and I wanted to explore my own curiosity, talk to people that I wouldn't normally get a chance to talk to and just put myself out there. And, um, and hopefully other people would find it interesting. So that's kind of how it started. Okay. And when was the, when was the kind of, when was it mentioned the first time by, by you or Julian? Uh, when, when did you want to get started? And when was the first one that you, if you remember? Oh man, I think it was 2015 or 2016. Mm -hmm. That okay. was when I started and it was, I think it was a group chat. Julian was very encouraging. At the time we were talking about a whole bunch of different just brainstorming a whole bunch of uh, magic ideas, project ideas. And uh, I think there was also a chat that uh, uh, Jarvis Yu was in. So Jarvis is also a, a legacy player and uh, really, really a very accomplished magic player. I shouldn't say legacy player. Um, you know, he, he's had a lot of success uh, as, a, as a grinder, as a pro. And uh, he was the first person I interviewed because mm -hmm. uh, I think it was in the same group chat. And I just said, hey, I... I would love to uh, try something like this. And he said, yeah, let's just try it. And uh, we just fired up the uh, recording software and just, just uh, that was the first episode. Yeah, uh, and Jarvis is a, a good friend of mine. And I think you, it's it's a good good uh, like a good point to interview someone you actually know, right? And, and that you're comfortable with to get you going because ultimately, and, and you can probably test to that, the most difficult thing with content creation is just to start. Right? Like you don't have to have the perfect setup, but sometimes you just want to start and and uh, and try to get stuff out there and improve it as you go. Uh, speaking of which, I, that's one of the things I wanted to ask you. You mentioned this part of the story on that podcast with Will. Uh, I was kind of curious, like you mentioned that if you could start over, 
maybe you would start to do it on YouTube as well, not just the audio podcast, uh, something you transition to later. Um, like, tell me a little bit about like why, how, how long it took you to realize that you need to do video on top of audio as well. I mean, this day, uh, to this day, I'm still kind of on the fence about <laughs> that. Like to me, it just felt like video was a natural progression because all the podcasts in the world were trying to do that. But it's not an absolute must. The only reason I thought about YouTube or video is because discoverability. I just feel mm -hmm. like just very practically, right? This is <laughs> a very practical matter. It's very hard to grow a podcast and get people to discover it. Like it's just, we're still in this model where you have to go find someone's podcast on your mm -hmm. podcasting app, subscribe. And you, it, it just feels like with YouTube, you can put yourself out there a little bit more. And I also really like the fact that you actually get comments on YouTube. You actually get comments on videos. You True. actually have people uh, give you feedback. Because I know people leave reviews and ratings on podcast apps or platforms, but it's not as frequent. So I feel like there's just more of a potential connection uh, going on. And also, I was just thinking, like, I started doing video interviews with people and not using the video because I wanted to have this. I wanted to have mm -hmm. like be able to see each other. Cause like if you, when I was doing just audio, I always had to kind of um, interrupt or add laughter or add my own verbal acknowledgement because I couldn't see them and they couldn't see me. So it needed to be a technique, but then I always ended up wanting to edit them out. And most of the time I would. And so uh, it actually felt I guess video felt like a challenge because most of the time now when I do video, it's just one take, right? So I, I never feel like, um, I never feel like I want to back away from a challenge. So I was telling Will in that interview that my only regret is not doing it sooner because there were a couple of years where I thought, should I do video? And I just kind of, I was just kind of fearful of like, oh, it'd be a lot of work. Like it would have to, you know, have to edit video and I don't know how to do that. And it's just... I think as a content creator, just just your fear of unknown or change just always seems to hold us back, you know? Yeah, I, I agree. And But one thing I would note is that I feel like the landscape has changed quite a bit. I, I tend to look at it from a perspective of, you know, magic coverage where back in the day it was just text, right? Then we we then had like Rich Hagen, uh, you know, do his kind of podcast style, like reporting from the GPs and PTs, right? You had those audio clips with, you know, very little video content for like Pro Tour Top 8 back in the day, but evolving into, you know, live video and then the YouTube ecosystem of Magic really grew. Whereas with podcasting, I felt like before it was its own big thing, but now it's like part of a, of a larger thing, usually people start as like YouTubers or streamers, right? And when you start as a streamer, you, oh, it makes sense to do some, you know, YouTube highlights and maybe it makes sense for me to have a podcast, right? So it's like, it's lower down, down the funnel, uh, you know, of content consumption, whereas you had Humans of Magic as a standalone thing uh, that you mm. then try to branch out into these these other media, which is, I would I would think is a bit more difficult as well, so. And I, I wanted what to you ask you is. real quick. Um, yeah, sure. I, I know I knew you were asking me, but um, like, <laughs> you, you can't how do you feel? Habit, I get it. <laughs> I know I can't, I can't, I can't resist the urge. But how do you feel as a as a caster? You know, just the evolution of coverage and being involved in that. Do you do you like it? Do you 
like in the old days? Do you like it now, or do you want? Are you looking for some sort of middle ground? Um, I think it has, it has changed. Where I think in in a way before, uh, you know, we had the expectations that there would be a good magic tournament nearly every weekend, right? Whether it was a European GP, an American GP, maybe a pro tour or some other event, like there was a pretty good expectation that you would have a lot of um, like live magic content to consume. And like since, you know, COVID hit and, and of course the development of YouTube, a lot of people figuring out YouTube, it has changed. And all, of course, partly that also the the focus of Wizards has changed from competitive play to a lot more casual play, like Commander, right? I would say that the number one type of consumed content on YouTube is probably Commander. And so it has definitely changed for me as well, where maybe before, um, you know, at tournaments, I could get be recognized more, you know, or I felt like I had a bigger voice just because I felt like I was visible a lot more these days when i just cast once every couple months it's, it's not the same as it was before right and the people i usually you know the talk talk to me about being a caster are the ones that have watched me before right so it, it has definitely definitely changed but it's fine i as i said it I, it felt a little bit uns, unsustainable just because you know it's investing a big part of yourself into doing something like that uh or you know even someone like cedric and and uh um Sully doing their their stuff over on the CG circuit like they used to travel you know 30 40 weekends you know in a year and that's just like really not great for your mental health you know and the, all the travel and everything it adds up so it, it has changed but I, I I can't say it's better or worse I I feel like there the more magic content there is to consume the better everyone can find their niche yes Anyway, so uh, speaking of, you know, latching onto this, like uh, you mentioned, like, oh, maybe video is something that you want to do. Do you have any other regrets from your, the early days of Humans of Magic? Is there something that you would have changed looking back now? I think just be more consistent because mm -hmm. uh, Humans of Magic started for a number of years just being kind of a, a bucket list project. I just wanted to use it as a, as a vehicle to interview people whom I respected and wanted to talk to. And I just wasn't consistent, man. Like I just, I was maybe sometimes I, it'd be like two months between an episode. It'd be like a month between an episode. Uh, I just felt like, actually, I would say it's kind of, the pendulum has kind of swung back. Cause like last year was when I started doing, I was like, let's be serious. Let's do weekly. Uh, mm -hmm. And I, I really thought long and hard about doing before doing weekly. Cause I thought, man, could I actually commit to it? Um, I tried weekly. I've done weekly for, uh over a year so like over 52 episodes now i've now i think i'm settling back to bi-weekly because mm -hmm. um i just feel like it's going to be more sustainable there's no like sometimes you have to push yourself but you also don't want to push yourself so that for no reason like mm -hmm. <laughs> so yeah. uh so it's like finding the balance but i would say definitely one regret is consistency uh as we had already mentioned not doing youtube sooner because i think it would have helped the the podcast grow a little bit and I think the other regret that I'm trying to address now is making it more conversational at the beginning. I think that was a major thing that I had to uh, really be intentional about changing. And I, I mean, I still don't have it perfect to this day, but I'm definitely trying to um, have a bit more of my own personality in the conversations and really make it a conversation as opposed to just you know, 20 questions with James or something. 
Yeah, but I mean, like, there there's different formats, right, for interviews and like choosing this sort of style. I mean, you you gotta find it. But but one thing I wanted to address there that it feels like you know you've you've come to the barriers of a lot of content creators, right, where who are trying to you know combine maybe their work with also doing content creation, right, and trying to find the right level of commitment. And it and you know it's difficult. It's uh you know it's difficult to just move into that and trying to to grow things naturally. And um yeah I. It still seems like you're looking for that balance, right? Like, what is the right balance of of how you want to approach this and how you want to, you know, live the life of a, uh, you know, James the content creator on top of like James the regular human with a, you know, with a nine to five job, right? So, but speaking of content creators, that's one. There's one thing I really wanted to talk to you about because I'm very curious, uh, and it stems again from the Will Hall episode. I'm sorry for name dropping him so many times, but I can't help myself. It's okay. I really enjoy doing the conversation with Will, and we've talked about doing yes. a second one. So <laughs> yeah, yeah, of course, of course. Um, yeah, it was, it was it was good fun. Um, so uh, after that episode aired, um, you know, there was a little bit of contro- controversy on Twitter. There were a few mm-hmm. tweets, right? They were stemming from that that that. that podcast and i'm just curious like can for those you know who missed it because in this twitter day and age it's very easy to miss right Mm -hmm. things and you know things might get blown out of proportion but i i kind of wanted to kind of your take on like what happened and how that relates to you know you as the content creator relating to other content creators in the space yeah yeah um so i'm glad you asked about this because i had some time to think about it um i think the thing about twitter i'm gonna keep calling it twitter i know it's called x but (laughs) i'm just gonna call it twitter because who knows it might be a name change next week right so it might go back to twitter um (laughs) old habits die hard um i i think the i think the number one thing about twitter it's it's like that meme like you never want to be the main protagonist on twitter that's the goal is to never be the main protagonist i think for one day or maybe two days i was the main protagonist and what happened was the background is that i've been trying to find the right balance of like content quality content long-form content which is what i do and quite frankly clickbait and what happened there was i I basically shot myself in the foot. I I started because I started clipping parts of the full episodes that I thought would be interesting, that would be would make people curious or interested. And I basically plucked some of the conversation, I would say, out of context, where if you just looked at the clip and you didn't watch the first hour and a half of the conversation, you'd be like, what the heck is this? And I think that's what happened. And when I say I shot myself in the foot, I fully admit to making or presenting some of the content in a kind of clickbaity way. Because uh, basically, Wode and I were talking about um, a particular individual whom I didn't like. And I, I basically used the conversation to talk about that individual and presented it as... Um, me hating on that individual. And I did it myself. It wasn't even like, okay, someone um, watched Humans of Magic and clipped my thing. Um, I shot myself in the foot. I fully own up to it. Um, I thought it would be a way to get people interested in the full episode, but that it didn't end up that way. Basically what happened was <laughs> it created controversy where I shouldn't have um, created controversy. And I realized that it definitely was a mistake. I, I don't want to... I want to own up to that. It was like just it would it, it kind of cast Will in a bad light too because he was in the clip 
and I was talking about this other person and it had nothing to do with Will. So it was kind of like me using my own platform to just rent. And it's not even what I usually do. It's kind of like when I say I want to put my own personality into it, I think it went a little bit too far in that direction in my own agenda. So, um, yeah, I guess, I don't know. I, I hope I'm being specific enough, but it's yeah, like yeah, basically yeah. just, just me trying to figure out like, uh, how to get attention on the internet and just backfiring. And I just yeah. realized after that incident, like I can't just be someone who wants to generate outrage and controversy at someone's expense. It's just not sustainable. If I was a sociopath or a psychopath, like, I don't know, I don't know which one, like I would just do that. Like it was the first time I felt like I had the agency to do that if I wanted to. Like I could become somebody whom I wasn't uh, if I did not care about the consequences of that. Because I see, I saw that the, what do you call that? Outrage marketing is just so much more effective than yeah. uh, alternatives. Yeah, so, and always um, was. Always was. Always right? was. Always yeah. was, right? I think that's just the... Um, especially on platforms like uh youtube and twitter uh so but i think i think it's the whole it's the whole thing like you there's a responsibility to your platform you mm -hmm. have to um play the long game especially for the show that i'm doing which is about building goodwill and putting people in a good light and having human conversations with them it's yeah. not about um it's not a it's not a channel where i'm just venting right so mm -hmm. i i think it was definitely a misstep yeah, I mean, you, you're going through what's typically f for all content creators, right? You make mistakes, you try things, right? You figure out what works, what doesn't work, and you try to adjust. In this case, you know, there was some backlash from other content creators in the community. Um, but I, I as, you, as you mentioned, like you, you've taken it down, right? You, uh, you tried to, you, you walked it back, you realized your mistake and, you know, you'll, you'll try to do better. Uh, but I, I understand it. Um, why, why that sort of things happen? Because as you said, outrage marketing just works. Clickbait works as much as we, you know, hate to admit it. Uh, we are also sometimes, you know, fall to it, but yeah, that's, uh, that's just the way things are. And, and, uh, hopefully, I mean, it looks like you've learned your lesson. So that's important. I, I think so. I own it. And I guess the analogy I can also make is, uh, you know, short, short form versus long form content, right? Because you know how like nowadays we have YouTube shorts, we have Instagram reels, <laughs> yeah. we have TikToks, and then we have my YouTube long form videos. And there's actually a very common um, uh, belief, and I agree with this, is that like if you're a long form creator, you don't necessarily want to do a lot of like shorts and short terms, short form stuff, because even if you're getting subscribers or attention from that, those people are not actually the ones watching your, your long form. So it's like, you know, if I create a controversial 20 second clip and it gets a million views, like, sure, there's some sort of like vanity metric or boost, but it's not really what I want to do. Cause those people are not going to be watching, um, an hour, an hour and a half interviews. So yeah. yeah, or more. Yeah, hundred percent. So, um, in any case, I'm hoping that you know, um, in the future, you you know, you'll avoid these sorts of things, and you'll have great guests on on, uh, on Humans of Magic. Which I wanted to ask about is um, my last questions about Humans of Magic is like, who is there someone that you try to interview but haven't been able to, and you would really like to? Like, is there someone who's like, say, not, not necessarily saying no, but like you haven't approached it that you really want to? Um, 
that I haven't approached, eh? I've been rejected or ghosted by a lot of people. Um, you know, I have a lot of people turn me down. So you're you're <laughs> you're saying not those people, but just people that I haven't asked yet, right? Yeah. Is there I'm just looking at my list. <laughs> oh, you have a list? I, I mean, I have a list of people that I potentially want to ask and I haven't had a chance to. And it, it's kind of nerdy to have a list like this, but I like to stay organized. Um, I mean, I guess I can name drop a few people. Sure, I would say ahead. like there's... I would definitely say there are some pros that I still want to talk to. For example, um, Sam Black, mm-hmm. uh, Andrew Cunio. Mm-hmm. Um, I would say that there's also, yeah, I think Alan Wu. I think mm-hmm. I think there's people that are more like pro players. And I basically what happened was I spent a lot of the last year interviewing more magic content creators i i mean there are there are pro players that are content creators who but i'm thinking of content creators as in like you know they do commander content or their primary thing is is content and i i realized that i've been a little bit lacking in terms of interviewing pros and that's actually people that i'm more interested in honestly but it's kind of bad to say this but i was kind of doing the creator interviews for the like I enjoy doing them all. Like, don't get me wrong, right? But I felt like they would also help, kind of, grow the podcast because, like, they also have their platforms that they yeah. promote. And what I kind of realized now, after this whole like debacle that we mentioned, and and just going through some stuff this year, like, I think I just need to do stuff that I enjoy mm-hmm. fundamentally yeah. first. And I think I went a little bit too far in terms of like trying to do things that weren't necessarily me like i'm not saying i regret interviewing anybody but i'm just saying that when you have finite time and you're trying to do this as a part-time thing um yes it's good to get growth but there are costs to it and there are opportunity costs so there are still people like andrew cuneo and sam black that i really want to talk to because i just want to know how they think about magic and life and it's not to do with like oh i think this person's gonna get get me um, some kind of traction on my podcast. It's not about that. Like, I feel like that will just come if I just do my thing over time. Mm-hmm. Like, maybe that sounds arrogant, but I, I think I, I just need to trust the process and follow it as yes. opposed to yes. chasing something. Yeah, you need those reps. You need to know what, what who you want to be and what, how you want to shape it. So that, that makes complete sense. So, and, you know, it wouldn't be like if you're just doing something for the sake of doing rather than enjoying it, the, it would show on the quality, right? So mm-hmm. I, I'm fully with you behind that. Um, I want to, you know, leave the content creators a little bit aside and talk about more, maybe something on your software engineering side of things. Um, one of the projects that, that I've known you for that doesn't really get talked about that much anymore because uh, I assume it doesn't exist anymore anymore is the cardboard live the the twitch extension uh, so I would yeah. just I would be just kind of curious if you could tell me the story of uh, of how it came to be how it was used and, and what happened in the end yeah yeah I love to talk about that <laughs> so um, cardboard live is just something that my co-founder Wilson Hunter and I came up with together so um, Wilson is not someone who is as active in the magic scene, but he was a pro player. He did play on the pro tour a couple of times. Um, so he was a very high level player. Uh, we had known each other through magic circles and we basically wanted to solve this problem that we felt existed for viewers, which is oftentimes when you watch magic coverage, you have no idea what's going on, especially <laughs> as you're entering halfway through 
or you don't know what round it is. You don't know who the players are. You don't know what decks they're playing. And it requires talent like the casters, like you, to tell people often repeatedly what it is. And so the whole concept behind Cardboard Live initially was to just level up magic coverage using software, using uh, an overlay. Um, we had a, we had done a couple of, built a couple of cool things. Uh, we started working with Wizards as well. Um, and I think I think to this day, Wizards still uses Cardboard Live for the deck list part of um, think so, coverage. Yeah. So that's, that's um, we're really proud of that. So how did yeah, you get I, them Car- to use it? Like, what was the what was the process like? I'm I'm very interested because it, I maybe there's other people who have built really interesting things or want to do it, but like it needs that sort of traction right from from the publisher right away. So how, how did you how did it happen? You know, I have to think about it because I don't exactly <laughs> remember. I don't. I'm pretty sure that Wizards just approached us. Like they oh. just approached us and. Um, Actually, no, sorry. It's been a while, so it's coming back <laughs> to me now. Uh, I swear, this is not revisionism. This is, it's actually coming back to me. Because we had, we had started Cardboard Live just organically. Like, we just try to grow through word of mouth and having people use it. So we had people, like, individual streamers use Cardboard Live. And it was being used for a while uh, quite commonly in a lot of streams, like individual streams that Magic streamers had. And then I think the big thing for us was... Um, Wilson knew uh, Pete Hoffling, so mm-hmm. the president of Star City Games, and we managed to get Star City Games to use Cardboard Live for all of their events. So we had we had um, SC, Cardboard Live as part of SCG coverage uh, as the overlay on Twitch. Uh, I think they started using us for Versage, which was their weekly uh, gameplay series, and I think that was. The one of the things that got us on the map with Wizards, because then from then on, it was like, you know, Wizards employees, they also watch coverage of, yeah, of course. <laughs> magic events. And, and I think it's just sort of that organic growth and word of mouth and seeing that. Um, and, and I think that's how they approached us was uh, really building up a little bit of traction on other channels. Yeah. yeah and so you got picked up by Wizards and it was like pretty widely used for a while. Uh, what happened to it? Where... Where is it yeah, at? Yeah, <laughs> um, it still exists. Uh, Wilson is still behind Cardboard Live. I have chosen to step away from the day-to-day of Cardboard Live. Um, it's just, uh, yeah, I mean, uh, I just felt like I was ready to move on. I had other things that I wanted to focus on in terms of career. And uh, I, I guess I should say, I should say this, like Cardboard Live existed. Wilson and I pivoted the the concept because Carbo Live we wanted to build as uh, we wanted to not just do a Twitch extension, but we also wanted to build our own competitor to Twitch or Mixer. We actually started building our own streaming platform, and unfortunately, it didn't get the traction that we wanted. So it stayed on primarily as the Twitch extension, but that was the vision, and we took the technology that we built and we started a a new startup company called StreamSage that was using a lot of the Carbor Live technology that we had built, uh, but an entirely different vertical, like entirely different content, like no longer magic. It was other types of online streaming content. And uh, um, we started focusing on that. And at that time, we were still running both companies. So CBL, uh, StreamSage, I was involved in that. Um, But last year, I decided to take a step back from that and uh, move on to another 
career opportunity. Uh, and that's when I um, made the clean break from uh, both companies because I was stepping into a career or a role that required me to be full time. I didn't feel right to have kind of two full time jobs, basically. So it, it's uh, that was what happened. Yeah, I mean, you were you were looking for a balance, right? We we've mentioned it before, right? It's it can be difficult to manage multiple things like this, especially when you also maybe had some ambitions in the content creation space or or wanting to continue with that. It's it can be very difficult to juggle. So, and I have fond memories of cardboard life. That that's why I kind of wanted to, wanted to ask, but um, but yeah, me uh, too. So, I thank you for asking. <laughs> yeah, no, it's good. And you mentioned your book already, so so that that's one thing that that was a project. But something that's similar to that, and and you've kind of, you know, you said like a um, couple of times that you want to avoid the, uh, you know, self-indulgent things. But one thing that I I have associated with you as well in my mind is your newsletter, right? And and maybe not many people know that you actually have a newsletter that that where you share your kind of life, work, education, and I specifically remember the lockdown diaries that that you did, um, uh, like uh, I think yeah last year, right? So. Um, for me, newsletters have been on like a bit of a renaissance in the last couple of years. Like a lot of people have have started creating them. I was just wondering, like, what was behind your decision? Like, like what was your aim with uh, with uh, with doing the newsletter and sharing what you're going through with other people in this way? Well, I had always had the newsletter going for a while, even before the the lockdown. So for the for folks who don't know, like, there was a serious serious lockdown in China last year. Like, it was. Um, the most draconian of draconian lockdowns. Like it was unrivaled by any other country as far as I know in terms of like restrictive access, like being able to go in and out of your home and just access to food. And it, it, it really, uh, it was a lot. So, but but uh, to answer your question, I'd always been doing the newsletter even before that, just as a way to just connect with friends. Like I'm very introverted. So <laughs> I, I like to do things like podcasting and talk to people one-on-one. -on -one and uh write newsletters about myself in personal ways mm -hmm. and that's how i like to uh communicate i just I, i'm just not the kind of person to uh go to a pub and and go for drinks with people and just talk about stuff and then i i've always been very interested in writing and sharing my the way i think in in very specific ways so the newsletter mm -hmm. was a way to do that and just a way to to write um, of course I was doing it a lot more regularly before the YouTube thing, but, um, to, to write weekly, uh, on a regular basis. And, uh, yeah, that was the, that was the idea. And then when the lockdown happened, it was just like a way to communicate with people because people would just ask me like, um, how's it going? And, and <laughs> I, I have, I'm, I have a lot of difficulty answering that question. Sometimes it's like, <laughs> how's it going? Like, do you want the long answer or the short answer? I guess the short answer is like good or yeah. whatever, but I always like to, um, it's almost become like a, a joke by now. Like if someone asks me now, if I, how am I doing? Like, I'll just say the short answer is this the long answer. And then there's a link to my newsletter or my blog, which is really yeah. just a newsletter, but in the, on the website. And, uh, it's just people, if people want to know, they, they can read more. And, uh, I, I, I enjoy sharing that stuff. And I think during the lockdown, it was a good way to, um, to just let some things out basically. No, I I'm just surprised at the at the form, right? Because a lot of you, I I've learned this over COVID that 
I felt connected to some people, even though I haven't seen them in four years, you know, or a long time, because they were posting on Facebook or Twitter, you know, or these sort of things. But with you, my connection was the newsletter, because it, it <laughs> and it's it, in a way, you know, I understand that you know it's also public, right, in a way. But uh, Facebook and Twitter and Instagram and other platforms are um, just very public. And like yeah. personal, like going outwards, and but it kind of creates engagement. Whereas newsletter is again something that you do on your own time, and then you share it with people. And I'm sure you know people based on what you wrote, like people connected with you afterwards, right? At least that that's what you're implying. But I'm just curious, like curious, why is exactly uh, you know a weekly newsletter, newsletter rather than like you know a daily or by you know every other day uh, Facebook post or something similar? Ah, uh, okay. Okay, I see. Um, I like the weekly format of the newsletter. I like weekly, first of all, because I feel like weekly forces you to write something that is a little bit organized. I, I often just write something and then leave it, and then the next day do some editing. Usually that means just cutting in half because I just write too many words, um, and still too long, I think. So um, I like weekly for that reason. I like newsletters because I just find that a lot of my friends, even older friends or my age, they don't really check Facebook anymore. Mm -hmm. And I have their email. So I feel like email is the most immediate way because I have I'll have people like directly reply to the email and then I can just start a one on one conversation with them. Um, and I have a few friends that are not active on Facebook. So that was kind of like the reason why. Um, of course, I'll, I'll do the double post, like I'll, I'll do the newsletter yeah. and I'll do the Facebook link to the, the blog. But I just never really was someone who was just like only posting to Facebook because I thought that there might be some friends that don't check that. Mm -hmm. And a, a newsletter just feels more personal because you have to opt into it. You have to subscribe to my newsletter. So I feel like it's okay to be really personal and share stuff and go deep because you chose to follow me, right? To follow the newsletter. Whereas Facebook, it's kind of like we were just friends like 10 years ago and now you see the stuff and it, it's fine. But I, I feel like there's less of an opt-in kind of mechanism. Yeah, that's fair. That's fair. Um, one thing that that like outside of the COVID like lockdown diaries, one thing that that I distinctly remember from your newsletter, and I wanted to ask you about, is uh, kind of getting your MBA, um, like going through like an educational course. Maybe you know it, it, you're not in your early twenties, right? So like you, you took it on pretty late in your life, relatively late, right? Compared to maybe when usually people do like the, these sort of things. So um, what did you do, uh, and why did you decide to do it? Yeah, I mean, I've always wanted to get uh, an MBA, Masters of Business Administration. It just never really felt like there was a good time to do it, and I and I think for what I'm doing, which is um, product management within software. A lot of people get MBAs so that they can be a product manager. And I, I was lucky to just already have the opportunity to become a product manager. And I <laughs> like this career track, so I didn't really need an MBA. But I've always been kind of a lifelong learner and just just speaking to the curiosity and learning. I feel like I, I felt like it's kind of like humans and magic, like there's a bucket list. So there's a there's a bucket list of things that I, I want to do from a learning perspective. And I think what really happened was I always had it on the back burner. Uh, my wife was very encouraging for um, influencing me to get an MBA. She was actually the first one who wanted to get an MBA. Uh, and we decided, okay, if we're going to both do it at some point. Maybe I can go first because she was at a, 
a busier point in her career, like less uh, flexibility in terms of schedule. And of course, COVID happened, right? So yeah. I, I started the MBA in 2020 because I knew that I was going to be stuck in, in Shanghai for for a while. So I, I might as well use the time to um, to commit to something like that on mm -hmm. weekends. So that that's, uh, yeah. yeah. And what did you like the most out of it? Like what was the most enjoyable part of that MBA experience? Outside of like actually getting the diploma at the end. Oh yeah, I mean, uh, no question, it's the network, right? It's it's just meeting uh, folks that I feel like I have a good bond or connection with in my class. Like just the network, um, the friendship, I should say. Like it's, I I often think that it's kind of like this dirty concept. Like like you know, it's very transactional, but it's not like that. I feel like the culture, at least in our class, is just like people are just willing to like go have lunch. It's not like you have to do something for me. I do something for you. It's not like that. Like it's very friendly, laid back. I think it's just the culture of our program and our school. And uh, I think without a doubt, it's the uh, hopefully lifelong friendships that I can develop through through the network. Yeah. You think magic and humans of magic has maybe helped you prepare for that, for, for that networking part? Do you think it had a maybe helping hand? A little bit, I think. Um, I, I actually, I don't know what my life would be like if I didn't have humans of magic. Uh, I mean, I think from an MBA or networking perspective, it definitely helped me think about how to be a better or how to be a better communicator period. Um, mm -hmm. I'm very um, happy with the progress I have made as a public speaker and just learning things from this uh, project. But I think also it's just like humans imagine has got me through some tough times, especially last year with the mm -hmm. lockdown. It was really nice to just talk to people like, you know, some people do zoom calls. I do them as well. Some people do podcasts and uh, it was really, uh, it was really, it was really helpful. So. Yeah, no, no, absolutely. And, and I think it just shows the, you know, your kind of mindset. And I, I would, I would say that from my perspective, you, you find something, you're a doer, right? You want to do something, you want to achieve something and you just decide to do it, whether it's starting the MBA or, uh, or doing something like, um, like continuing with the podcast that, that, that you started or trying to put a twist on it, you're working on it. And I think it's, it's something that others, you know, could see and, and take the same approach Just try to be open and learn new things, even as you, as you grow older. So, so that's good. Speaking of doing though, I want to do the part where it's similar to like, um, uh, late night show in the US where you know a lot of a lot of the guests are have a movie or a book that they just released right and they get invited and so last week I got in my inbox an email about the why a new project that you've started so for people who haven't seen it haven't heard it tell tell us what is the why I mean because we're talking about the context of humans of magic here like it's the real pitch or the real thing is like, it's humans and magic without the magic. It's, it's really just humans, right? <laughs> humans, so yeah. I have so much fun talking to people about their why or what motivates them, what drives them, makes them, what makes them who they are, their passions, stuff like that. And I've always done it. I, I always felt like the best episodes of humans and magic was when we went full out, like all in into that domain. I can think of a few episodes in the past year where it was, for me, it just felt wonderful because we didn't talk about magic almost at all. Like it was just <laughs> magic was the pretense to just have these conversations, which I really enjoyed. Um, again, not the, 
not the most popularly viewed or listened to episodes, but I just enjoy them myself. And so this project is really just to remove that magic barrier. It's really just humans and magic without like, I don't have to have, <laughs> I used to joke with uh, Julian, uh, whom I mentioned, like, you know, we can keep doing humans and magic and I'll just hand every guest like a pack. I'll just mail them a pack of magic cards. Like, look, look now, now you're a magic player, so I can interview <laughs> you, right? No, I didn't. I just didn't want to have that restriction anymore. I wanted to uh, just open it up. I, I just really enjoy talking to people about um, what motivates them. And, and uh, <laughs> for the initial couple of episodes that I've recorded for the why, I have to admit, uh, I was trying to source guests. So I actually ended up interviewing a lot of magic players, but it was about all the non-magic stuff. So that I think it's really cool. Like, cause I, I just feel like as people, we have like so many interests, right? Like I'm sure that you're also not defined just by magic, right? You're a, a, a father, a husband, uh, you have other things going on in your career and mm -hmm. it's very easy for, I mean, in this day and age, I guess we kind of have to like specialize or say that Mate is X, right? Or um, not Twitter, but Mate is uh, is <laughs> is is this person or this person who does this. But the reality is, I just want to explore more than that. So that's that's what the project is about. It's it's really like an excuse to have interesting conversation with people and hopefully like unlock a little bit of what makes them who they are. Yes, and and you forgot, um, James. I can already tell you're not a great YouTuber slash you know content creator because you'd be like like and subscribe follow the channel click the bell you know go go to that twitter account sign up but on the other hand i know that you want to grow it organically right like you it already became apparent that, that you're not the clickbaiter and i'm sure it'll find its audience uh right because especially if you're starting with magic players i i, I saw that the first episode with zach hill haven't heard from zach in in ages so i would love to hear what he's on uh, what ha is happening in his life so i'm definitely going to you know check it out and and uh listen to to that one as well yeah yeah i appreciate that um i have no idea if this is going to be successful and i have my doubts as well to be honest but i just feel like i just i just want to try it yeah. and do, do you uh, feel it has to be successful for you to in, no, it enjoy doesn't. it it doesn't yeah. like i feel like the 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 test is going to be am i enjoying these conversations would i do them even if i never release them if the answer is yes then i would just do it um yeah. you know be reasonable about it right like be reasonable like you have to obviously um uh like i can't kill myself like i'm not going to try to like like destroy my schedule trying to do these interviews but like within reason, if it happens, if it, you know, in a good way, um, I'll just try to keep doing them. Mm -hmm. I mean, it, it weaves, weaves through the entire interview, but I, I, from my perspective, if it sounds like it's something you enjoy doing for yourself, right? Like actually talking to interesting people, learning from them, even if the bar is just like, you have to like it and one other person likes it in the world, like even that is is good right and and i saw that that your videos get you know hundreds if not thousands of views so there are people who enjoy them so as long as you know it makes you happy and keep uh, and you can keep producing it without you know endangering your mental health or, or your other uh, life stuff 
just do it and you know do it and that's uh, i think a lesson for other people as well just make sure you 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 do the things that you, that you enjoy and i can tell you from my perspective again not to be self-indulgent towards the end of the interview but you know when when the covid when the pandemic started i i took a step away from magic um just because you know i had a small child i you know i had a wife to to look after and and uh, i wanted to spend time with them but I, re I was really kicking myself for like stopping play, like stopping playing completely. I was still following along, but I, I just didn't have any cards at all for like nearly two years. And I, when I came back and I got, you know, super engaged with Magic again in, uh, in the autumn of 2021, I was kicking myself. Like, why did I stop? I love Magic, but it also helped me kind of. Uh, as you did with a lot of things in your life, to try to find the right balance. I don't force myself to play yeah. for the sake of playing. I, I'm trying to enjoy things. And, you know, if I don't like a set, I'll just stop playing and I'll come back to it, you know, when the next set comes out. Maybe I'll enjoy it more and not, you know, do what I used to do before. I just, like, do try to do everything all, all at once and just do magic. Now I play other games. Now I do other things. You know, I, I have new friends as well. And I think go, doing something that's good for your personal growth and your own mental health i think is paramount so yeah. i think you're we're both kind of you know over over the pandemic we've learned you know our lessons about how to maintain the balance i hope at least yeah the pandemic was a lot so <laughs> I, I i think we definitely have all grown from from that yeah. experience yeah, and learn to cope. I think that's that's also important. Mm. But one thing that I'm happy that that came back is, you know, humans of magic, and uh, that it's going to keep releasing and, and your new products out there as well. You know, people. Uh, just to summarize, like go, you know, subscribe to Humans of Magic. The why, uh, find uh, find James newsletter, sign up to that because I I think it's pretty fun, and you you get to learn a lot of really fun things. So and that's gonna wrap up the interview for uh, for Humans of Magic. James, uh, how did it feel to be in the uh, on the other side of the of the table? Well, you're a really good interviewer, so it felt really good. I still felt a little bit self-indulgent talking about myself in this way but i i can think of no one better to have interviewed me so thank you so much for taking the time my pleasure i don't usually do that but i felt like i wanted to i wanted to give it a try because i've uh, i've been an admirer of of your work and you know i i, I do watch a bunch of other like non-magic interviewers and i i it's a craft that i respect so much and uh you know from not just from me but i think from a lot of magic players james thank you for for making the show and for making our lives a, a little bit better for it so thank you very much and uh that's it thank you for listening to humans of magic you've made it to the end thanks so much you're awesome if you'd like to support the show there are two ways to do so the first way is the most powerful Tell a friend, tell them to check out Humans of Magic. I'd love it if you could spread the word. The second way is to join the Humans of Magic Patreon at patreon.com slash humans of magic. Patreon is the best way to directly support the show from a financial perspective. For as little as $2 a month, you can support me and join the Discord. It gives me the power to keep cranking out new episodes with your favorite magic people. If you want to go the $5 support route, you'll get a digital copy of the Humans of Magic book. Thank you for listening. I appreciate you, as always, making it all the way to the end, and we'll see you 
next time.